This new chapter is going to entail one of the most controversial topics amongst all Christians. And especially in our time, it's been very controversial. There are several controversial, I guess you could say, theological doctrines that are in the Scripture. I say several. Uh, it seems like every week that we run into, there's always a controversy, no matter what, what we're talking about. But there are some that rate higher than others. This is way up there. I will tell you that what we're going to be dealing with today and probably the next few weeks in chapters 9, 10, 11 of Romans, that it does fire up emotions in the body of Christ and actually even makes people angry, angry at each other. And uh, because of their differences, sometimes it can actually turn into a knockdown, knockout, drag out brawl, I guess you could say sometimes. There are countless debates that we have probably uh, seen down through the centuries. And uh, we know it goes all the way back. Uh, you can look at uh, Augustine and see uh, how he debated that. And then Luther versus Erasmus. Uh, Calvin uh, had his debate. Jonathan Edwards had his debate on it. Uh, all of these are from the, uh, the historical Reformed people that we know so well. They all agree on it, but there is a body of Christ that will definitely disagree with this. They will fight vigorously in debate on this belief, of whatever their belief is. And so we say, well, what is this theme that you're talking about, Dennis? I can't wait to hear what you're, you're saying here. Well, we'll get back to that. <laughs> Hang on. Um, like I said, we're beginning a new chapter. Chapter 9 of Romans. Chapter 8 leads us right into this chapter 9. Now, that may sound differing to others. Others may say Romans 9, 10, 11 has nothing to do with Romans 8, has nothing to do with Romans 12, and so therefore it's called a parenthesis. It's parenthetical. It's something that's set aside here and Paul gets kind of um, taken off out into the woods, you know, and uh, he's on a rabbit chase. And that's not what I say at all. And the more I, have, I read this, the more I'm convinced that it is, a, it is attached and connected to Romans 8, just like all of Romans has been connected from one chapter to the next. And so what we're saying here in this cl close connection is what he has just stated as he closed out Romans 8, starting at verse uh, 28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined. He predestined them to be like Christ. And then in time He calls them, He justifies them, and then glorifies them. And in our text today it is the past tense. As far as God is concerned, it's already happened. So that is where we've been at as you go into Romans 9. It just makes sense what we're going to be talking about. And of course, I know you're looking at your outlines. Uh, if you all 
have one. Hopefully everybody's picked one up. There's plenty around if you don't have one. There's on a, they're on a chair. Don't, don't worry about it. If somebody comes in, well, um, we'll give them another one. But um, what we are now dealing with is election and reprobation. And the Jew would be following Paul, who has had arguments all the way up through chapter 8 that have been lock-tight. You can't crack him because he is right on in every element that he's saying. And one backs up another. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so it's absolutely right. And in a court of law, if you had the true judge, which is God, <laughs> he would say that everything that has been presented is absolutely correct. It's right and it's true. So, what about the Jew? That's what it would be said. We know in Romans 1, 2, and 3, we see that all men are sinners condemned, uh, even the Jew. And the Jew would say, well, what advantage then have we had then of being a Jew if we're in the same spot that the Gentiles and everybody else is in? They didn't want to believe that. And Paul proves it. And he sets out what justification by faith is. And he declares this all the way through chapter 8. And he shows because of justification of God, there's no condemnation. He proves that there is security all the way through eternity. And that's what he said all the way through those eight chapters. Now we cut out a lot right there, didn't we? <laughs> but uh, the Jew is saying, okay, well, what about Israel? Well, what has he done with them then? Are you saying that he's cast us out and we no longer have any hope? Is that what you're saying, Paul? And Paul, if what you've said in Romans 8, Romans 8 is just negated if we're saying that God has cut off Israel. And so therefore, that's why you have chapter 9 because it's talking about the security of the believer. And then they say, okay, what about the Jew then? You're acting like the Jews are cut off. Separated from the love of God. And it's like the very people that he first started to put his love upon, he has now taken it from them. And Paul, how can you say this at the end of Romans 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> it's kind of the key there. But nothing can separate us from God. Has God abandoned the Jew? Is that what we're saying? You know, also, you know what the Gentiles are saying? Hmm. If God has abandoned the Jew and He had all these promises to them, then what about me? Maybe I could lose that love of God, that salvation that He's given me too, because if He's cast them away... Maybe He could cast me away too. How do I know for sure my salvation is secure? Has God, I guess, saving, has His saving purpose been all for naught? Is it really maybe a lie? Well, with all that in mind, we come back to this controversy. This is about words that people are ashamed to say today, but they are very much in the Bible. 
And it's all throughout the Bible. It's all throughout Scripture. And so these words should not be condemned. And we live in a day where words are being changed. They're being muted, taken out. You know, what's happening in our society. History is being taken away. So why wouldn't people that are getting offended want to take these words out? These words are important to us. Very important because they're God's words. Every word of God is true. Every word. So when people say election, people go, oh, you shouldn't say that. Predestination, it sounds like a heavy word. Predestination. That does sound kind of heavy whenever I say it. That's kind of like what R.C. Sproul would say. Uh, I'm not making fun of that. And then there's another word that we will be looking at today, and I am not going to apologize for God. I'm not a liberal. I have to say whatever is in the Bible. Double predestination. And now people go, now they gasp. Uh Uh-oh, we're not going to get into that. Uh, The justice of God in saving some and passing by others. Oh, this is a dreadful doctrine. That's what they might say. What about Jewish failure? Here's a controversy with some other people within the Reformed theology, uh, which will say that God is done with Israel now. Israel is the church. What does Paul say about this? What does God say? Uh, What about the eventual salvation of the Jews as a nation? What about that? Well, we'll get all of this in Romans 9, 10, 11. We'll get it as the way that God says it, so therefore I'm not going to hide it back. This is very deep. I don't want to scare people, but I will tell you this is the very Word of God and I cannot hold it back because it will scare people. I will tell you, I was uh, asked to uh, teach at a church for so many weeks in a row dealing with the book of Romans. They wanted me to go through the book of Romans, and I think it was like about four times. I had to divide Romans up, 16 chapters by four, and what's that? Four chapters a week. Four chapters in an hour. And he asked me, and I said, how can I ever do that? But I said, okay, I'll be glad to. Yes, I will do that. We did four chapters the first weeks. Next week we did another four chapters. That's eight chapters. Now it came up to nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Uh, twelve with those other chapters. Oh, okay. Uh, so I'm ready to give that. And uh, this is whenever I was uh, running the store, the Christian bookstore. And. Uh, the preacher who asked me to do Romans came in that Saturday afternoon and he said, oh, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, well, we've done eight chapters. We'll be doing nine, ten, and eleven. I guess I'll try to put in twelve, but or I might go ahead and go twelve through sixteen. And he said, oh, you, you're, you're not really thinking about doing 9, 10, 11, are you? I mean, could, couldn't we maybe just go ahead and go on to twelve? And I said, and I called him by name because I knew him very well. He knew me too. And he's the one that asked me to do it. He never told me anything before, but he said, you know, he said, I was looking at that last night and it's, it's rather disturbing. 
and I called him by name. I said, are you saying you just want to skip that section because it's it's pretty heavy? Is that why? Is it is it because of election and predestination and what to do with Israel? And he said, yeah, I'm not so sure that people can handle that. He says, uh, I said, yeah, but you know, you you are an expositor. You believe in preaching the Bible. I know you you are a believer in, in the word of truth, every word of it. He goes, uh, yeah, yeah, I am, but that, that section is, is, is too much. I said, you mean God made a mistake by putting it in there because he might scare some of these people? You can go through any part of the Bible and do that. Matter of fact, you can go through the Old Testament. Just study Kings. And you, know, you will get a little, uh, little afraid there of some things that happen. Uh, you can go to any book that you want. It's going to be there. I said, I would, I'm compelled by the Lord to do this because it's His Word and I, don't, I cannot skip and he said, okay, very well. He says, but be careful on those verses. <laughs> I said, yeah. I did it. And you know what? I thought, oh boy, you know, what's going to happen after this? Is he going to ask me to leave? Or... There were people that came up afterwards and said, this is exciting. One lady said, I've heard about this. And she said, I listen to John MacArthur, and she says that's exactly what he says. Now, does that make it just because of MacArthur? But that's what she said, and I go, "Oh, you're blessed." <laughs> and other people came and said, "Thank you for going over that." They said, "I've never heard that before, but you know what? It's got to be true." And I go, "It does." And there were other people that started coming up afterwards and said, "Thank you for going through that." And so we did 9, 10, 11 in one hour. Probably went over an hour. But people, I had no resistance whatsoever. And the pastor friend that I had, he was a dear friend. I really, uh, really respected him. And he was a man of God. And he was an evangelist. And matter of fact, the church wound up kicking him out. And I'm not even so sure. I think it was because he challenged the people so much that they didn't want to be doing some of the things but at any rate he uh, we remained friends and uh, he never really said anything about what I did I didn't want to go into the pulpit of somebody else and do something they didn't want but yet he had asked me originally to, to do the whole book of Romans so I went by what he originally said um Election, predestination, reprobation, double predestination, God passing over some, that's deep doctrine. And so uh, I am not going to excuse God because that's what it would be if we just skipped this. I remember the quarterlies that we did in Sunday school back in the day, uh, back whenever I was in my 20s or even in my teens. and. Whenever there would be controversial passages, and there are many, they just wouldn't do it. It was not in the quarterly. It was not even there. The text of the scripture was not there. They just went and just skipped on to other verses. And, of course, I'm sure they would do this. Uh, it's not because it's over our heads. It is deep. It is difficult. And it's getting into the very mind of God some things that we cannot understand. But 
we want to understand things that we are meant to understand because God would not have written these and have given these to us. It's, uh, I don't want to upset people. Uh, so, uh, hey, let's go to chapter 12 now because it really makes sense after where we've been, right? That's why they'd like to be this parenthetical. As soon as we're going to 12, it says, Now, therefore... You know, and it talks about uh, presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice and renewing our minds. Now, here's how you live it. Here's all the doctrine in eight chapters. Now, chapter 12, live it. And so they say 9, 10, 11 doesn't make any sense in there. Do you see why they say that now? And I say, and we say, yes, it does. And we're not going to avoid it and excuse God for not being very loving here. <laughs> We're going to understand the depth that is there that is intended. And I think that we can have a good handle on it. We will be blessed as we start this section in 9. And we have several verses today, and I better get on with it. Let's read our 13 verses. Let's stand in honor of God's holy Word that He has given to each one of us it's all a love letter from God. It's very personal to us too, isn't it? I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. But we're going to continue. I ordinarily would have stopped there, but this is where we're going to keep going. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah, also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand. Not because of works, because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Father, great God, our purpose this morning is not to cause division or to see that I have a hateful attitude and don't care about the lost. It's far from that, as Paul says here. But 
we've already discovered that you are a God who chooses who he desires. And then that leaves the question of what about the ones that he does not choose. We know there's never a reason why you chose us, for we know every one of us here deserves hell. And really, we were all on that way. We were destined for hell. But God, you sent your son. He came down. You sent him here to die for our sins. And that is the only reason by that action of what he did and that sacrifice and taking our sins that we can even claim to be Christians because of what Christ did and it started long before we were ever even born. We owe everything to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's get started in this text that we just built up that is so divisive And let's see what God says. He says, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing witness here. You know, and the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, I know exactly what you're thinking. And I know you're thinking, if you're a Jew, I know what your next question is going to be. And that's why he wrote it the way that he did. Every synagogue that he went to, I'm sure he got this question whenever he put forth the gospel and proved to them, their, the Jews, their own Bible, through the Pentateuch and through the uh, prophets, that it was all leading up to Messiah. And you're saved by grace alone. It's God who is the one who picks you. And then the Jew would always say in that synagogue, well, what about us then? Uh, I thought he chose us. Doesn't that make it automatic, right? And Paul has been talking about foreknowledge, which means he knew you. He had a relationship with you before you were ever even born. And he predestined you. He predetermined this justification, glorification. He called us. We know that. How does this pertain to the Jew then, Paul? What, what's the deal? What about him? And Paul is saying, hey, I want you to know. And I'm telling the truth. And this is the way I really feel about it. It's not that he is on a, a crusade to condemn the Jews because he knows what God called him to. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And what uh, he goes on to do here is he explains that he really cares like nobody else. Because you see, he was a Jew of Jews. He was a tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee. He was an Israelite of all Israelites, right? I mean, if, if anybody is, Paul is. And we know that he persecuted Christians. That's how Jewish he was. He had a heart for God. At least he thought he did, but he later saw his true heart. He was converted by God, and you see, that wasn't his choice. Paul didn't have anything to do with it. Do you remember how he was saved? He was on the horse, and he was on his way to Damascus to persecute, even possibly execute Christians. What did God do? Knocked him off that horse, blinded him, and after a few days, God showed him what this was all about. God chose him. Paul did not choose God. And 
every synagogue that he would go to, he would preach the gospel out of the their Old Testament. And he was proving the Messiah has always been shown throughout Scripture. People were persuaded by Paul. He gave lock tight arguments for this Messiah. And this is the only way that one can have salvation. It's through the Jewish Messiah. He was born a Jew in his being a man. This would either make them very angry or they would say, what must we do to be saved? One or the other. There's no in-between whenever He gave them the Scripture. And you see, there were many of them that were Judaizers. And a lot of them would be Pharisees. And they did not want to lose their position in the synagogues, in the temple. And so whatever Paul was preaching, they would get up together and say, we've got to go after him. And what we have to do is he goes into the synagogue. Those people have heard that we've got to go in and defend what Judaism is really about. That's why they were called Judaizers. They're so much into all the Jewish customs. So he'd travel from place to place. They would try to overturn everything that he had started. As a matter of fact, it got so bad they wanted to kill him. And you look in Acts 23. You see, to them, he was really a turncoat. He was a traitor because he stood for the Jewish cause. And then he became converted to Christ. Changed his life totally. And that's what happens when you be converted. Acts 23, verse 12. When it was day, this is a plot against Paul, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath saying they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. So they get the permission to do that. They, you know, they go to the chief priest and such and they have this conspiracy. Conspiracies happen, don't they? They're true. And this happened. They conspired against Christ. I want to kill him. And, of course, you know, they would really have liked to kill Christ. They did, but he came to life. So now, who represents Christ here on earth? The apostles. And here's Paul. We've, we've met the 12, 12 apostles. Paul is one untimely born. A few years after them, although we, when he became a Christian, there were still apostles around, absolutely. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 26. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. We've read that before recently. That's what Paul received five times from his own people. That's that. It's one lash shy of what they said would be death. I mean, it, it could take it up. Of course, a lot of them could die a lot before that. 
but surely 40 would do it so they would keep it back from one. And so if they did kill him, well, that was that person's fault. They could say, we didn't give him 40. Anyway, that's the way that they thought. Uh, Paul is saying, I'm not lying. This is my heart. I would be willing that I be condemned, accursed, if they would become saved. Wow, Paul had a heart for the lost. So much so as that he'd say, I'd be willing to go to hell. That's really kind of what he's saying. This is astonishing that Paul had this entirely different view than they had of him. They hated him so much hatred that they wanted to kill him. They could never get it done until the time was right. You see, he had a lot of visits to synagogues and a lot of people were going to be converted to Christianity, Jews and Gentiles. So it was not his time until the Lord said, now it's time. God gives our time of when we're going to be born, and He gives the time when we will die. He's in total control. I'm so glad of that. I'm glad I don't have any control on that. Uh, we'd be all in a heap of mess, wouldn't we? Well, at any rate, this is what it is. He knows these people are His kindred. He has a deep, passionate concern. and They are His own race. Some of them His family, extended family, aunts, uncles, cousins. And he says the word accursed. It's anathema. Anathema. You might have heard that word. Uh, there are some denominations that will use that word anathema. Let them be accursed. If they don't believe in certain of our own doctrines, then let them be accursed or anathema. They will use that word anathema. That's the Greek word here. I would be accursed, damned, cut off from Christ. That is the idea. I know I use that word, but that's a word that it really meant to them. Paul used an extreme word because this is extreme. By the way, this is actually a hyperbole. I will tell you that it couldn't happen. It would be impossible for Paul to do that. But he's extending as far as he can of telling how important they are that they get the gospel. And he's willing to die for them to be accursed. But that can't happen, and he knows that. And of course, people would be saying, well, how can that be? Because you already said, Paul, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. The very last verse of 39. And that's why I say Romans 9 is just right off the heels of Romans 8. Why would you want to ignore this, right? Half the body of Christ won't touch this section, folks. At least half, probably more. I know why. But he says that he's saying here something that he's already written and he knows it's not possible. There's there is one person that could do that and he did it. It was Jesus. He died on the cross for our sins and that moment whenever he died all the sins of ours body of Christ all the believers were put on Him at that dark hour. 
That's an, an accursing. That's the curse. Galatians 3 talks about the curse. Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And that particular text was dealing with Christ being on the cross. Dying for our sins. He was cursed because He took our sins. But we know He arose. So that gives the positive aspect. But do you see what it is? There's only one that could be a substitute for the people. It wasn't Paul. Paul could not be a substitute for the, for the Jews. But if there's any way possible he could have, he would have done it. But also at the same time, he knows that he could. But that's how sincere he is. I'm going to get a word of application here. Do we sorrow for the people around us who are lost? Do we really feel this way? Well, I would hope so. We have lost family members. We have lost friends, lost neighbors, lost co-workers. They're everywhere. There are lost people that are leading our government. Lost people everywhere. We really need to care like Paul cared there. That's incredible. There are great sinners out there. And they're great because they're all great sinners. And we identify with that because that's what we once were. Great sinners. And we were born that way. And we proved it by the way we lived it. Okay, that's part number one. First three verses there. Verse four, here it is. Now they've already asked, well, what advantage then is it to be a Jew then if you know if they're not saved? Well, you know, we had all these advantages, Paul. Look at this. Why would God give that to us? That means something. And he identifies with this. He's already said it before. And he says, yes, they have far more benefits and advantages than anybody ever else in the whole world. Yes, they were. And Paul starts talking about it. Because he knows he was one of them. Who are Israelites? And so there, this is an advantage. Israelites... Israelites had plenty. They're Israelites. Look in Genesis 32, 28. You have Jacob. Jacob's name means Israel. God comes down and literally wrestles with Jacob one night. You remember that story? And then verse 29, or verse 28. Uh, God said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Uh, he might as well just said, deceiver. And that's exactly what he was. Matter of fact, did you know what Satan does? He deceives. Jacob was a deceiver. And then God says, God's been wrestling with him, right? And that's really what Israel has done all throughout their history. They wrestle with God. You know what? We do too. We wrestle with God. We wrestle with God in Romans 9. He said, Jacob, he said, okay, your name shall no longer be deceiver, but Israel persist. To persist with God. I like that. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. He strove with God. He wrestled with Him. He prevailed. 
stayed with God. He didn't want God to let go. He didn't try to run from God at that time. Israel. Israelites. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel. From there on, they're called Israelites. Sometimes we see that they're called Jews. But that's an advantage that they have. Now let's go on to the next one. Adoption as sons. Well, we've already read Romans 8 and I talked about adoption. We spent a week on adoption. What's that? Man, that's the, what a great privilege it is to be adopted into the family of God. When we once hated Him, we were enemies. But He adopted us into His family. Well, in this case, the text is, is they were adopted as sons as really the selection of the Jews. God chose one nation out of all the nations. Do you have any trouble with that? Almost all Christians. I have never met a Christian that would say, well, God didn't choose Israel. They knew that He chose them out of all the other nations. They were privileged. They were blessed, weren't they? So He selected them out of all the nations. And you know what their duty was? to take the gospel to the nations. They were to be the priest, the go-betweens. They were the royal priesthood. They were kings. They were priests. So adoption as sons. It means as a nation, God chose Israel. Uh, let's go a little bit further. And the glory. And really we uh, can say the Shekinah glory. That is the glory that was seen during the time of Moses, for instance. Remember the Shekinah glory? On Exodus chapter 16. And we're taking pretty well every word out of Romans 9 here, aren't we? To, to set up what this whole doctrine is about. Exodus 16.10 these people were privileged to see the glory of God. And it came about... Now this was dealing when God was getting ready to provide them meat in the wilderness. Do you remember how they abused that though? But here it is beforehand. It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel. Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. A few hundred years you have Moses... Moses is going to give the law here pretty shortly. But they look toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Do you remember in Exodus, cloud by day, so they got a shade as they traveled in that hot mid-eastern sun. Fire by night, whenever they would get up, they would have, actually have light if he wanted them to travel. Just follow him. That's your kind of glory. That's the glory that is seen in the temple at the time of Solomon when the temple is dedicated. The Shekinah glory. But let's, let's look at Exodus one more. Uh, it, it is over here several times. Exodus 24, 16 and 17. 24, 16. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the adopted nation, the appearance of the glory of the Lord 
was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And it would have consumed them had they approached that mountain and touched it. Nobody goes there. They feared God. They saw a little bit of the holiness of God. The fear of God. Shekinah glory. And they were led by it wherever they went. Cloud by day, fire by night. Okay, also, and I'm going to move a little quicker, the covenants. The covenant, there is an Abrahamic covenant. That's a promise. And it cannot be changed. A covenant is covenant. God's people break promises. They break covenants. God never breaks a covenant. He made a covenant with Abraham. He said, uh, look up at the sky, look at the stars. As many as there are will be, so your descendants. And as the sands on the seashore shall be your descendants. That was a covenant made with Abraham. Abram. As time went on, he built upon that covenant. Gave him more promises. And then Isaac got that promise from God. That was the covenant. Jacob got that same covenant. And more and more is being revealed. And then you go all the way to David and you get the Davidic covenant that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah and be coming through the loins of David. And so Jesus did. He was from the tribe of Judah. All these promises, they came true to the ones that were fulfilled the first time in Christ. They will come true. And the second coming of Christ, and that's starting with the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Do we get that? He's not forgotten about the Jews. hasn't pushed him aside as well as my uh, many of my colleagues believe that he's done with them and uh, they move on. And we are now that. We get the promise. They don't. What? Okay. I cannot buy that whatsoever. So that's why Romans 9, 10, and 11 was written for our instruction so that we would not say that. By the time you study those three chapters, you have to say it, well, so be it. I don't believe it. It's either that or you say, I believe it. Okay. Um, what's next? The law. That's the very Word of God. No other nations had such a privilege to have the very spoken Word of God amongst them. God sent prophets. Of course, Moses... Think of Abraham before that. You know, all of this and it was written down and then handed on. They all have that. What an advantage it is to have the Word of God. What's the next one? Temple services. Temple services. The temple was built. and They had the tabernacle before, but it was how God made the means that people could approach Him and be safe. It was by the tabernacle. What happened at the tabernacle? It was sacrifices, bloody sacrifices that would be substitutes for the sinners that came to worship God, which is everybody. The Jews had this temple sacrifice. They kept it all up until the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And since then, they have not been able to cover that, that bloody sacrifice and you know what it testified to? Blood does. The weight of my sin. Your sin. All the people that Christ died for. All of their sin. He died for that. That's how weighty it is. He had to die. There had to be a substitutionary atonement for the sinner. And that was the picture all the way until Christ 
fulfilled it all. It's the gospel, isn't it? And he rose to show that it was true. And it's who he is. He's God. And then says the promises. Right at the end of verse 4. These promises would be the promises of redemption to be fulfilled by the Messiah. Uh, the promises that were given to Abraham. The promises that are in the covenant. It's the promises that faith would be brought to the people that God had chosen. Jews and Gentiles. They would be granted faith and repentance. Those promises. And then he says in verse 5, Whose are the fathers? The Jewish had the fathers. It's the patriarchs. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Or you can go back. You know, the promises were given to Noah. Promises were given to Adam and Eve. We see that whole story there, don't we? Uh, and then, above all, from whom the Christ, dealing with fathers, and from whom is the Christ, He comes from those fathers. He comes from the race of the Israelites. It's the Christ or the Mashiach in Hebrew, Messiah, Greek, Christ, English. And it says here, it's all about Christ. All those covenants, all those promises, all of this, the temple services, the law, everything, it's all pointing to Christ. The whole Old Testament, folks, is Christ. Christ, Christ. I preach nothing but Christ, Paul said to the people in Corinth. He went to Athens and preached nothing but Christ, not about himself, but Christ crucified. So the ancestry of Christ, and Paul hits the nail on the head, it's the final strike as he closes out this verse 5. And, and it shows that Christ is not only human, but according to the flesh, as it says, but who is over all God, blessed forever. Christ is God. He is deity. He is God. As he finishes it up, and then he says, Paul says, Amen. No one can be saved apart from Christ. As he gave all those promises. Is that making sense now? Okay, now what we do is we start dealing with this election. Verse 6 is going to start off with true Israel. First of all, he says, okay, after all of that, look at all of what Israel has. Look at their advantages and benefits. Nobody else had that. Then he says this, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. You see, they'd be saying, well, then God's promises are not good. If He cast away His elect nation of Israel, then He failed. Whatever His Word says, God failed. What does Paul say? It's not as though the Word of God has failed. And you still have the Jew. You know, they said, what? what you know, look, this is what you're saying, Paul. And I'll agree with you. He says, for they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. What's the topic? It's the Jew. It's Israel. Somebody said, oh no, that's the church there. You see that last from Israel? You know, for not, for they, um, well, I'm still going to say, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Huh? That's easy for me to figure out. Is it easy for you? You're from Israel. You're a Jew by blood. 
That's simply what he's saying. And he will continue on with that blood thing all the way through here. Uh, That's a physical descendant. He says you can be from any tribe in Israel, but not be true Israel. You know what true Israel is? You can say, well, it's a church. Well, technically it means somebody who is a Jew who becomes converted and is a Christian. That is true Israel. And in chapter 2, he's already done that. He's proven it once. And now here in chapter 9, he says, true Israel is one who's a Jew who becomes a believer in Christ. He says, for they are not all Israel, even though they're, they're Israelites. They're not really Israel who are descended from Israel or descended from Jacob and that nation. And you can say, how do you know? Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. We're getting into the very bloodline. He's going to use Abraham here. He starts with Abraham. He's the father or the progenitor of the Jewish race. Was Abraham Jewish? Whenever God came to him and called him, no, he was not. He was not a Jew. He was a pagan, worshiping pagan idols. He did not pursue God. He didn't have an interest in Yahweh. He worshipped the gods that his fathers had worshipped. We know God's purpose has not failed. The Word of God has not failed. And so he says, listen, I'm going to use three patriarchs here to prove they became what they were by election. That's why we say there is such a thing as election. By the time we get to the end, he will even use that word. But he starts with Abraham and he's telling that everybody in Israel is really a true believer. They are blood-wise are because they come from Abraham. But what it's saying here, Abraham became what he was by election. There are other people who were not granted this privilege. Abraham was a pagan, but God chose him. Would you say that Abraham did not choose God? He did not. You can say, well, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's only because God had given him that new heart to believe, to be regenerated. And that, so we start with Abraham. He's a good one about election, isn't he? Uh, verse 8, that is, it is not the children, uh, oh, verse 7 says, nor are they all, chil- nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. Just because they're Jewish doesn't mean they're children of God. But through Isaac, now he started with Abraham, now through Isaac your descendants will be named. Well, okay, you know what he does? He's breaking it down. Abraham has these descendants that are uncountable. And they even ultimately include Gentiles even. But it starts with the Jewish race. Okay, now we have Isaac that comes into play. And you see, Isaac is going to be the one that God has promised to Abraham and Sarah, right? But who's his first son? Ishmael. Ishmael is not the chosen one that God is going to use. 
and he actually cast him off, gave him a land to live in. It's rather ugly and difficult to live there, but he had 12 tribes too. But you see, uh, and of course you're going to have Jacob and Esau, right? But you have Isaac and Ishmael, and now we've divided down there. There are two. One is elect, and another is not elect. Ishmael really is the, the father of who? All the people in the Middle East that are not Jewish. And all in that area, and that's, that's east of uh, Jerusalem and Israel there. And we know that they've been fighting ever since. Always have been. They were at war. But Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac is chosen. Ishmael is not. That is election. He started with election on Abram. Now election with Isaac and Ishmael. And so he goes there that it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God in verse 8, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Who's representing the promise? Ishmael or Isaac? Ishmael was around, what, 12 years before Isaac. Right? But he wasn't the promised one. God says, no, that's not the one. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise. Here's the promise. <laughs> At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Abraham, Sarah. Who did she have? Isaac, not Ishmael. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. Who's going to be the wife of who? Isaac. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. This time you have two parents involved. Abraham was the only parent that, you know, that we can say that was in the two, the two that, of course, he had a servant, a handmaid, that uh, he, would, he tried to make God's will come true, and that didn't go through very good, but there it is, and then God shows him what it is. Then Isaac and Ishmael, and uh, what we have now here is that they had the same father, they had the same mother. And so that's why I'd be bringing in Rebecca when she had conceived twins by one man, one woman, Rebecca, one man. Boy, I tell you what, what am I? Non-binary or am I binary, right? Or whatever that means. That, did you ever know what that meant two or three years ago? Wow, I'm not even going to be caught saying that. Okay, let's go on. But Rebecca and she had conceived twins. Isaac, Ishmael, for though the twins, and I, I want you to catch this here, for though the twins are not yet born. Do we got that? Do we have that? And had not done anything good or bad. They don't even exist at this time. So that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Abraham, Isaac. Was Isaac the child of the promise? Did Abraham have anything to do with that? Well, Abraham had his own choice. It didn't work. God said, no, this is my choice. And Ishmael is, is out of here uh, later on. Um, 
Jacob, Esau, same parents. Of course, Jacob and Esau, it's out of order because the twins, even in that sense, Esau should have been the one to get the double blessing. But And that's even in Scripture, but God breaks the principle there in the sense that He wants to show His choice went against a standard blessing to the elder one, which happens to be Esau. Did God choose Esau? No, He didn't. Say, well, Esau was a bad man. Well, why are you saying that? Did you read? Did you read the text? You just read down here. Though the twins were not even yet born, it doesn't even have them to do saying, well, okay, now I see that Esau is not going to be a believer. I'm going to choose Jacob. No, he can't see that. I mean, he could if he wants to, but he's not basing it upon their works. What is he saying here? They weren't yet born and have not done anything good or bad. How can he see it? He's doing it because he knows Jacob. Do you remember that word foreknowledge? Before they're born, that's where Romans 8 comes in. Do you remember in verse 29? That's what it was all about. He foreknew Jacob before Jacob was ever born. How could Jacob do anything good or bad? God didn't even look at works. Matter of fact, he knew that Jacob was going to be a deceiver. And then, what did he do? He changed him. And then changed him to Israel. One who prevails. One who wrestles with God. And it is according to God's purpose. Not Jacob. Not Esau. Not Isaac and... Rebecca, Abraham, Sarah. It was according, it was God's purpose according to his election, his choice, that it would stand. You know what he's doing here? God is proving to every believer that there is such a thing as election. And this is how people are born again. And the only people in Israel that are the people that are Jewish blood, the only ones that are going to be true Israel in that nation would be the ones that He chose. He chose Israel above all the nations. But were all those believers? No. You look through the Old Testament, you certainly see that when Christ comes here. Were all the people believing in Christ, the Messiah? Hardly any were. It was all very wicked. But Christ called many to Him whenever He was here on earth. Then the apostles went out and brought that same message, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist, Jesus, the apostles, believe in Christ who is resurrected. So they're all called. Jesus says, few are chosen. The ones are chosen will be converted. They will believe. They will repent. They will come to Him and He will no wise cast them out. Nobody will have the love of Christ separated from them if they're trusting in Christ as their sacrifice. Huh, boy, does that make sense? 
Does Am I just reading into this? Or is this saying Abraham, Isaac, Jacob were chosen? And there are other people that are chosen that come from them. They were Jews, but they're, go- they're going to be other Jews who are believers. There are others that are not going to be. And so God's purpose, according to His choice, before either child had opportunity to do good or evil, election is not on the basis of anything done by one chosen. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with works. It's all grace or nothing. Romans 1-8 through 8 talked about God's grace. Remember that? It's all God's grace. It's not, yeah, but He saw that I was going to trust in Him. Why would you trust in Him? The choice was made in the case of Jacob to teach the doctrine of election. That's why God did it. That's why He's showing it right here in Romans 9. He wanted to teach election. Choice is made before the birth. Choice is made before people are here. Choice is made before they even make a, quote, decision. Because He foreknew them. Because He predestined them. Romans 8 said that. And what we have here is this. We have His choices are totally unrelated to anything a human being might or might not do. It's from James Montgomery Boyce. I'm going to say that again. God made His choice before the birth of either one to show His choices are unrelated to anything a human being might or might not do. That means it's all on Him. Just in case you haven't believed that or not. And what we, the reason we come from that angle is because way back in Romans 3, He condemned everybody that had ever lived that was living at the time, and that would ever live, that's us. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. You mean Abraham didn't seek for God? Where are you proof that? He did not seek for God. God sought him out. Did Paul seek for God? Absolutely not. He was trying to kill his people. And then in verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So it has to start with God before we're ever even created. Long before the foundations of the world, he decided for some reason that he wanted you to become into his family and regenerated. Paul is saying in chapter 9 that it's entirely apart from any right of birth to the Jews. They had had birthright because they were Jews. Jesus made it very clear that's not the case at all. He said, Few there be that find it. And he said, Israel did not really go after him. As a nation, they failed. It is due entirely to the will and the mercy of the Sovereign God. Now I'm going to finish up here, and I think I've probably gone a few minutes over, as I usually do. I'm not doing bad. For covering 12 verses, folks. 11. What about there? 
And what I'm going to do, and this is what I planned anyway, I'm going to give you just a taste this week so that you will want to come back next week. No, <laughs> I know you want to be here anyway. Tell others. Tell others about it. Um, because we're going to get into more depth and, and we'll use a little bit of this, what we see here at the end of our section. But in 14 through 17, 18, uh, verse 18, uh, it really hammers on who God decides and wants to elect and who He doesn't want to elect. And we've seen the three generations of election, haven't we? And would you deny any of that? Would anybody deny the fact that they were chosen by God? Were there other people not chosen by God? Well, absolutely, He's saying that. He's saying there is a uh, an Israel that's not an Israel. They're not true descendants. They're not true Israel. Now we get into that word. I'm just going to touch on it. And that's about all I'm going to be able to do today. Double predestination. And I'm going to leave you hanging here, basically. But I can't leave you hanging enough to say, okay, uh, I'm not going to say anything about it. What about double predestination, Dennis? I really don't, I don't know about that. God chooses people. I can buy that, but... What about the other people? I don't want to hear about that. I don't really shouldn't have thought that people will be going to hell. Is it biblical? Yeah, it is. Everybody here agrees with that, right? That's a basic fundamental of the faith. All Christians believe in heaven, they believe in hell. Election is very troubling. It might be troubling to you right now. Or at one time it might have been very troubling because when you think about election, the thought comes up, even though you might try to suppress it, the thought comes up even more. You might become even more troubled with reprobation. Did we ever hear that word? Reprobation. God has reprobated people to eternal condemnation in a sense that parallels, but it's not always equal ultimacy in that sense, but in one sense, He chose people to be with Him. There are other people He did not choose to be with Him. You say, how can you say that about God? Well, I am not going to try to cover up for God. I'm not going to excuse Him. And we'll get into this next week. I'm just lightly introducing this, but I will tell you that it's been called a monstrous doctrine, what I just talked about. That means they hate it. They say that it turns God into an indifferent deity who just arbitrarily assigns some to heaven and arbitrarily chooses to send others to hell. And I extremely differ from that view. That would be the way an Arminian will look at it. And they cannot believe in an arbitrary God, and neither do I. It's impossible, though, to study election without also dealing with the negative counterpart. Calvin said election cannot stand except as set over against reprobation. 
the Westminster Confession, which was held to by many, and most of the church, if you're part of the Reformed Church, they believed this at one time, and still they started breaking up and then watering and watering down to where it got that they don't believe in a sovereign God. Uh, some of it's up to us. Do you believe in an absolute sovereign God? All Christians will say, I believe in a sovereign God. Do you believe in an absolute sovereign God? And they say, well... And you say, well, I'm talking about salvation. Does God have everything to do with that? Well, no, you do. That's what they said. Here's Westminster Confession, which is historical, which is based upon Scripture. It would use this text and many others, and I can't go over all those today, can I? Westminster Confession speaks of the reprobate being passed by. That's how they term it. God chooses some for salvation, others He passes by. And that's correct. He does. He passes by. The reason why some believe in the Gospel and are saved is because God intervened into your corrupt, evil, condemned lives and brought faith to you. That's the reason why you believe and you are elect because He came and He already chosen you and then He comes and does that. He does it by the new birth. He does it by regeneration. But those who are lost are not made to disbelieve in God. You say, well, He makes them believe. I mean, He gives them a heart and regenerates them. So that means He makes the ones that are not His, He makes them disbelieve. No, 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 no. Don't ever say that. He never makes them disbelieving. Say, now I'm really having problems. I cannot reason this out. Well, don't try too hard because you will wind up under the bed repeating the Greek alphabet. In other words, it can make you go crazy. Being said, it doesn't make sense. Well, to God, it does. One of these days, we might understand that. I can't go into that depth. How can that be? But... (laughs) They do so, they, they have unbelief because it's themselves. They don't believe. They don't want to believe. They do not. They cannot believe. They will not believe. It's because they don't want to believe. They hate God. Romans 3 said, None seek Him. All hate Him. They're all depraved. That's everybody. And so the idea is this. It's as Spurgeon said, you have a train going along and it's bound to go over the cliff and into hell. And all people are on this train. And God intervenes, picks some out, and they don't go over the cliff. Because they're all headed that way and there's some that He favors. You see, the reason people cannot understand this that He choose some and not choose others and they're thinking, well... Just in case, but I'm thinking about you know my my son, my daughter, or you know my mom or my dad, and they're lost, and so they don't want to think about that. But the thing is, see, we all deserve hell. Why did he even pick anyone to be a part of his salvation plan? That's the idea. He could have picked them all out, but he didn't. Why not? I can't tell you. Why did He choose me? There's nothing here I can offer. Nothing. I come to Him empty-handed. 
There's nothing that I can offer God, and that's the only way He can accept anybody when they come to Him empty-handed and say, God, there's nothing here. I deserve hell. I am a wicked sinner. I come to You pleading for mercy. Save me, God. And you know what? If you say that, He'll save you. All who come to Me, I will no wise cast out. So, election is pitted against reprobation And here's what God does to ordain the lost in. God needs only to withhold His special grace of regeneration. It's not that you can blame it on God. He never makes anybody sin. He never makes anybody disbelieve. That's their problem in the first place. They're degenerate and sinful. The confession speaks of God ordaining the lost to dishonor and wrath for their sin. So you can't blame it on God. The the lost are not lost because because God willy-nilly consigns some to be saved and some not to be, uh, but rather it's a just judgment upon them for their sin. And I'm just going to give you... My goodness, I really got much further than I thought. I'm just going to give you one text. We've got to leave. Proverbs 16.4. You see, I get into my section I like so much. And I just forget about time. I've been looking at the clock and I thought it was 20 till. I look up there and I go, oh, oh, I'm oh, sorry. I don't have to apologize, do I? Do I have to apologize? 16.4, it's the only one I'm going to read now, but there are many more. We'll pick it up next week in, in the book of John and such, or in Jude. 16.4, Proverbs says, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even wicked, the wicked for the day of evil. I don't know what to say. Romans 9 says He has mercy on whom He desires and He hardens whom He desires. Somebody will say, why does He still find fault? For who resists His will? On the contrary, who are you, old man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? It talks about the potter and clay. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. I have to read one more. Jude 4. Otherwise you think I'm making it up. You think I'm distorting this. Scripture interprets Scripture. Jude 4 says this, then we'll go. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is all about the glory of the Sovereign God. He does this because it's His glory. Why did He save any? That's our question. It's not, why doesn't He save the lost? He does save the lost. He does save it. He's a God of mercy. And if you go and call on Him for His mercy, He will forgive you. God wants to show off His mercy. 
His love, His grace, because it's for one thing, His glory. By His grace, for His glory, who are we, oh man, to challenge God and His truth? Father, great God, what can we say? But we are amazed at what Your truth is about. Thank You for Your Word. We believe it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. What I'm going to have you do is, uh, if you are a Christian, you believe in Christ, you qualify for taking the Lord's Supper. And that's saying, I'm a believer in Christ. I'm committing my life to Him uh, for everything on a daily basis. Not just baptism, but then we have the Lord's Supper to say, I am part of His family. So we will uh, we will do that. And, uh, we have the fruit of the vine, and we have the bread, the bread of life that's represented. And then I'll read the scripture when we come. We take it, and then we will dismiss. If we can start with, uh, I usually say this. I guess we're not dividing up anymore. We'll start on this side and come on around. You can kind of follow. It's really simple.